0: well good morning are you ready for this ready for christmas ready for all that comes with it well guess what ready or not it's here and uh uh, the next few weeks i know will be crazy and fun and um just festive but i've been centering around this word Vintage this year. Vintage. Now, I've asked a number of people uh, this week, what do you think of when you think of, when I say the word vintage? And you know what most people said? What do you think most people said when I said, what does vintage mean? Old, Old most of you, right? Yeah, honestly, Uh, A better percentage, a greater percentage of people said, I think that means old. Some said retro, yeah. Uh, But old. Well, there is an aspect to vintage that probably is old. Okay? But vintage, uh, old is um, this. (laughs) Not looking at anybody, right? It's old, it reaches the title old because of usage and wear and tear on it. Something gets old because of those things usage and wear and tear. Vintage carries with it a, a different theme. It can be old, actually, it can be new, but it becomes timeless, it's classic. It's quality. It's, it's choice. That's when you look up vintage, what it means. It's um, the best or the most distinctive. If something is vintage. Man, it is a 1957 Ford Mustang, right? Something like that. Yeah, I guess it's old. But man, that baby is timeless. It's classic. That's what this word carries with it. You know, the Christmas season is is full of vintage, vintage movies that we all love to watch every year. And those things are classic. They're timeless. They've been watching A Wonderful Life for 50 years, and they'll be watching A Wonderful Life for 50 more years. Right? Some of us have been watching Christmas Vacation for how many years, and we'll be watching it for many more. There's vintage carols that never get old, right? For me, I I especially love um, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. As soon as I start to hear that, man, it just is, you know, I'm going to listen to this for another hopefully 50 years, right? Maybe. You know, there's vintage traditions that we all look forward to. As soon as you think about Christmas, you think about Grandma's house, think about maybe a certain food or setting and they're just classic it's vintage it's timeless but you know what in the middle of this season I want us to grab on to the vintage truths that this story represents timeless the classic truths of Christmas I have something I, I, I just kind of illustrate vintage. If you were to walk into my office, if you spend any time in my office, you could glance up uh, on the bookshelf, one of the top bookshelves, and you'll see these two guys staring at you. All right? Um, this is one of my most favorite possessions in the world. You're like, what? It's just uh, porcelain heads and feet and something in between. I'm not sure what it is stuffing. Old. When I was eight years old, I was introduced to these guys. Tall, skinny English guy and fat American guy. And this duo has brought me a lot of laughter through the years. Um, Anybody know who they are? Okay, let me do it this way, all right? Anybody under the age of 30 (laughs) know who these guys are? Kendrick? Okay. Anybody under the age of 40 know who these guys are? Oh, man. Somebody in first service had uh, 40, under 40. 50. All right. I saw Angie's hand, all right? Who is it? Hey. Hey. There you go. Sorry, I'll get you something later, all right? I got more where that comes from. You just see Candy, she'll hook you up. (laughs) So this duo is vintage. They are classic. You talk to anybody who uh, works in comedy, knows about comedy, lives in comedy, go to Hollywood and you say, Who are some classic, who are some vintage, who are some timeless comedy acts? And Laurel and Hardy should come too. They'll they'll come up quickly. You know, these guys I remember as eight years old, I was introduced to them, and I still remember standing on our couch, jumping up and down as an eight year old, watching these guys. It's a little bit of slapstick, maybe it's a whole lot of slapstick, and it's just a lot of fun. Two guys when there was no color, there was no sound, they would do these short and they'd keep your attention and make you laugh. This is vintage, right? And that's what I mean by vintage, classic, timeless. And you know the scriptures in the four gospels, three of them specifically, or really two of them, recount the details of Jesus' birth. And each one was written to a specific audience, right? To a specific group. And Matthew was written to primarily Jewish people. That's who he wanted to communicate with. The former tax collector wanted to communicate to a Jewish audience. And so he begins his gospel in a particular way. It was a Jewish way of doing things. Because In the Jewish world, culture, where you came from mattered a whole lot. Where you came from was important. Who was your daddy? Whose family are you from? What clan did you come from? That began to tell them a whole lot about where, who you are, who they thought you were. And so Matthew does exactly that when he's introducing the Christmas story. You know, you could get, jump into Matthew in chapter one and you begin to read, Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob, and you start to read, right? This is who these guys are from. This is who this one, this one, this one. And you get to, cha- or you get to verse five very quickly, and you read this. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mo- whose mother was... Rahab, all right, so that's no big deal to us, right? Okay, keep going. To them, they'd have been like, they would have paused. Why is he introducing Jesus by putting women in there? They don't count. It's who's your father? Not in Jesus' world. And in fact, he's gonna use, the first woman he uses is someone by the name of Rahab. You remember Rahab's story? You remember Jericho? You remember the, the I don't know what phrase we use, now prostitute woman who hides the spies? That's who I'm with. That's, you know, like, honestly, you know, my family tree um my mom's side especially you start to read back a little bit and man you got some nefarious customers don't be scared I'm not talking like serious stuff but I'm talking about a bunch of people that you know like to like their alcohol a little bit too much probably put them in the county jail a few too many times you know up there and petoskey michigan area the thorpe family that's kind of my deal and and probably if i'm really wanting to introduce you to who i am or where i'm from i'm probably going to not make as a big a deal about you know i'm going to probably highlight the uh you know my grandfather was uh abraham lincoln and stuff like that no not really but um obviously you know that but um he doesn't do that there's something going on that's greater and bigger. Something we need to know. And in fact, it continues in this way. Boaz, who was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. And that's what I want you to see today. This is the vintage truth I want us to grab a hold of. This is a part of the Christmas story. And I think in this one little line, it tells us, so much about what we need to know. Boaz, who was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. You see, in the Old Testament, there's this little book called Ruth. It's after um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. The eighth book in the scriptures, a little four-chapter book called Ruth. That's who he's talking about. And I think that little phrase has a ton to help us understand about what is this deal? What is this all about? What do I need to know? What's the classic timeless truths? See, if you go to the book of Ruth, and I would tell you that our, the app's not working today or it's down, so... Um, just gonna have to go old school here today, either with your phone or uh, uh, just by reading on a Bible app or going to the scriptures, but if you open the book of Ruth, you begin to understand this story a little bit right off the bat in the first couple verses. It starts like this. In the days when the judges rule, this is a dark time in Israel's existence. There really is no leadership. Um, There is a lot of dark things happening um, this is, Samson was a judge, you remember that? Different judges, just a, just a bad time in, in Israel's existence, not a highlight time. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, all right? Big deal then, still a big deal, but we're able to cope with it a lot better in those places where it happened. Then, I mean, it was life altering. And a man from Bethlehem in Judah recognize that place right Bethlehem and Judah together with his wife and two sons went to live for a while in the country of Moab so all of a sudden my livelihood's gone there's nothing I can't survive here I don't know what I'm gonna do so he up and takes his wife and his two sons and they go to Moab Now, to you and I Moab big deal where's that at nothing doesn't mean anything in this culture in this context it meant a whole lot the people of Moab who is that well the people of Moab started out of an incestual relationship between Lot and one of his daughters yeah not a good start here right You remember Lot? Remember Abraham? Lot is cousin. And you remember how um, Abraham tells Lot, you know what, go ahead and take wherever you want to go. I I own all this stuff, but I'll let you have first choice. Lot decides, you know what, there's a lot of green grass, a lot of uh, opportunity, economic opportunity. Um, but it's closer to the city called Sodom and Gomorrah. And Lot goes that way. He ends up in Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember, God decides that this place is so absolutely wicked, it needs to be uh, removed from the face of the earth. You remember that whole deal? And, but he says, Abraham, you can warn Lot, Lot to get out of there. And so Lot finally decides with his wife and his two daughters to escape the city right before judgment rains down and, and you remember as they're leaving, um, the Lord had said specifically, listen, this place is so perverse, so wicked that when you leave, don't even look back at it. You get out of there and don't look back. And you remember Lot's wife? Um, I don't know why. <laughs> it was a bad decision. As we tell our kids, that was a poor choice. She decides to look back and you remember, she becomes a, a pillar of salt. In other words, she's no longer with us. And so Lot escapes with his two daughters. They escaped into a kind of a mountainous region. And basically, the story goes that as they're there and they're just it's just them, and the daughters begin to panic. They begin to think, "What are we going to do? How are we? I mean." Um, how are we going to continue to exist? Are we, are we going to find anybody? Is anything gonna happen? And and finally they concoct a plan that they decide to get their father drunk. And um and out of that, those episodes, um they conceive children. And Moab is where that started. So these people, not, not a not a great start, right? And then you continue to read in scripture where um, there's incidents that happen with, with the Moa, Moabites that's what they did then that day like Americans Moabites it's kind of how you went by ITE here thing so Moabites kind of it, it it's still in scripture it's, it's so sordid the, the Jewish people come to the, the land of Canaan they're going to move in and the Moabites resist them they fight against them they don't help them and so You read even where there's an incident in Numbers where, again, this is just a sordid tale, but it's so important for us to understand what this means, that um, uh, some of the women of Moab uh, begin to have relations with the men of Israel. It's an intentional thing, and it so kindles God's wrath that this should not happen, that 24,000 people die, men die, because of this activity, it's it's stuff like this that you want to know who Moab is, and he's going to this place. It's not a place that has a good history with the Jewish people, right? In fact, listen to the words of Deuteronomy chapter twenty-three. This is what God says: the curse of Moab. No Ammonite or Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord. If you're a Moab, a Moabite, you can't go into the temple of the Lord. None of their descendants, even to the 10th generation, shall enter the assembly of the Lord. That's Moab. And that's where Elimelech and Naomi and their two sons go. A man from Bethlehem and Judea, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilon. They were from Bethlehem. They were from a tribe, one of the twelve tribes of, of of Israel, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now, we're getting out of here. We're escaping. We're going to go back in a while, but we just this is how we're going to survive. Now when they're there though in the country of Moab this Jewish family in Moab Elimelech dies all of a sudden they start taking hits the patriarch dies and now Naomi is on her own with her two sons in a foreign country and in the, in, as time passes on the two sons find Moabite women and they marry them they marry one named Orpah and the other one's name is who? Ruth. And after they had lived there 10 years, okay, so we've left, things have happened, we just kind of settled down, my kids married, people from this land were here. All of a sudden her two sons die. And now Naomi is left without her two sons and her husband. Things have went south in a hurry. Things have went off the track. And we read that Naomi in the middle of all this and what am I gonna do and I've uprooted and I'm here but now the reason I'm here is totally gone and now I'm a woman that has two Moabite daughter-in-laws and she heard that the Lord had come and was providing food back to Bethlehem in Bethlehem. And she and her daughter-in-laws decide, you know what? Let's go back because of the most vulnerable people in that whole culture. It's a woman without a husband or a family to support them. Women were culturally marginalized in those cultures and they were very vulnerable. And Naomi decides, you know what? I got nothing here. We got nothing here. Let's go back. I've got family back in Bethlehem. Things are better now. Famine's moved on. Let's go back. And so as you would continue to read through Ruth, you would see uh, the first chapter where she looks at her daughter-in-laws, Ruth and Orpah, and says, listen, I'm going back. You don't have to go with me. you lost your husbands. This is your home. Um, Just please find Husbands. Get on with your life. To which, over a course of some time, Orpah decides, you know what? That's what I'm gonna do. I'm just gonna stick around. But Ruth says, no way. In fact, you would recognize this verse. Sometimes it's read at funerals, not funerals, weddings. And sometimes people have it on their, in their houses. It's this verse, Ruth's words, right? Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn my back from you. Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. When you die, I'll die, and there I'll be buried. And may the Lord deal with me. This is kind of like one of our oath things. I put we, you know, we do things in our culture. Like I put my hand on the Bible, or you know. Anyway, uh, may the Lord deal with me. Be it so severely if death separates you from me. So you've got a daughter-in-law that is absolutely saying, I don't care, I'm with you now. And I'm willing as a Moabite to go with you into a foreign land. Now, uh, there's an interesting play here in the first chapter that I just wanna touch on for a moment because I think it's something powerful for for, for us to remember. Naomi has had her world absolutely turned upside down. She's been displaced. As she's displaced, she's lost her husband. She's lost her two sons. She starts to have words in the first chapter like, The Lord has treated me badly. The Lord has been indifferent to me. The Lord has caused me this great suffering and circumstance. And in fact, as you read, she gets to this point where she looks at Ruth and says, We're going back, but guess what? When we go back, I don't even want you to refer to me as Naomi. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away and I was full. I'm going to go back and I'm empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Lord has brought misfortune upon me. And you know, as I was studying that, thinking about this whole story, putting this together, I thought, you know what, Chip, you just need to pause again a moment and remind remind us about this whole world. Because there's not a week that doesn't go by normally in this congregation where I chat with someone and I've gotten to know you better and better and, and, you know, more initial and more where I don't encounter someone here who is dealing with a unfortunate a misfortunate unfair tough circumstance right if you live and breathe life is going to have hardship it comes to us all in different ways in different seasons through different circumstances. I just want to remind you, you watch Naomi, she goes from complaining about it and being bitter to just absolutely assuming it and and, and taking it on. I mean, name it and then claim it. It's like, call me bitter. I'm so ate up with this. And I just want to remind you that the scriptures talk about this a lot because the, th- the circumstances of your lives are not the most damaging thing that can happen to you. I know sometimes that's tough to understand. The things that are the most damaging thing, to the th- one of the things that's the most damaging that can ever happen in your life is to allow those circumstances to make you better. The way I picture it, the way I think about it, it's like a cancer in our soul. It grows up, it springs up, however, cancer forms, you know how? And then cancer starts to metastasize, right? And grow. And so often, if you don't stop it, it's just going to claim your body. And bitterness is like that to our souls. Over and over in Scripture, the New Testament. God calls us to give that away to him, to allow unforgiveness to be dissolved in our heart and to allow his healing grace through the power of his Holy Spirit to heal us from that. That is so important for us to grasp. Bitterness ultimately holds us captive it doesn't change the unfair circumstance. And it doesn't serve justice to the one who deserves it. I'm sorry. That's life. Bitterness does nothing but make you a captive and hold you a prisoner. And I just thought I'd take a moment to take a sideline there because it's something we all need to hear. I need to hear this. I need to understand, we need to understand that one of our greatest enemies in this world is the enemy of bitterness. Maybe you know somebody who you, you can very quickly and easily say, you know what, they're ate up. They are ate up with bitterness. It comes out in symptoms like always being negative, always complaining. You know what that looks like. Quite frankly, probably you've been there. And I have too. And we see a woman who's ate up with it. And she leaves with with Ruth and they go back to Bethlehem. And it says there was a, it was right during the time of the harvest. And so Ruth's, the story in chapter two starts this way. Man, we got a destitute, desperate situation. We got a widow. We got two widows. One's a mother and a mother-in-law. They have no support. They have no provision. They're on their own. There is no structure to how are they going to survive. They're displaced. Naomi's displaced. Ruth is without a husband, and she's married a Jewish man in a Moabite country, and she's marginalized for all those things, and her other option is to go to a country that hates Moabite people or looks at them, you know, with the long eye. It's not good. Chapter ends, not good. Chapter 2 starts this way. Now when they get to Bethlehem, Naomi knows that she has a a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing. Uh, The way this is, the man of standing word here in the Hebrew, it can mean two things or it can mean both things together. That's exactly what I think it's saying, scholars think it's saying. A man of standing could mean as a high character person or it could mean he was a wealthy person. Or, it could mean, even better yet, it was a high-charactered, wealthy person. And that's what he's saying. She remembers that she has relatives in Bethlehem, obviously, that's where she's from, and that there's a guy named Boaz. And they get there, and she's thinking about that, and she's hoping that something could happen. And Naomi comes to her, obviously, and is like, we got nothing to eat. What are we going to do? He said, Naomi, I'm going to go out and look for something to eat. And she says, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. I mean, you talk about a desperate situation. This is homeless beggar type stuff. They show up and Ruth says, I gotta go do something about this. And so she goes out and and, and what would happen so often was in harvest time, a couple things. You could walk behind the harvesters and this happens in our fields, even with our combines. There's stuff that doesn't get harvested; gets knocked down, but it's still there on the on the. And you could get that. There also was the Israel, the uh, Jewish law was farmers were instructed to leave the corners of their fields unharvested. That was intentional. That was for the poor, for the destitute, for the traveler who was going from place to place and maybe was out of food. God always said, "Look out! Care for the poor." In our country, and don't harvest the corners of those fields. Leave them for anybody who needs them. So Ruth is going out with this mindset, and she ends up at a field, okay? So she went out, enters a field, and begins to glean behind the harvesters. Now, as it turned out, this is an interesting phrase, or just by happenstance, or what a coincidence Ruth ends up working in a field belonging to Boaz so this story is going to take on a different a different feel Um, it's kind of like this here's how I could set the scene for you Um, I do I I will I, I will sit down with Nicole and she wants to watch a romantic comedy type movie or a romance type movie, and I'll, I'm, I'm in. I'll do it, right? Any of you guys do that? <laughs> it's hard to admit sometimes, but um, yeah, okay, I'm in. And you ever have those moments in those movies where just the way they come together, the circumstance of the way somebody meets somebody, and the way it comes about, and I'm sitting there, and I'm sitting there in my mind, I'm watching this, and I'm thinking words like, this is completely absurd. This is what's wrong with this whole thing. Like, they expect me to pull this off too, you know? And I wanna just look at my wife, and times I have, I wanna just look at her and say, pfft, no way! And I go turn and look at my wife, and tears are starting to come out of her eyes, right? Like, I mean, she is totally, and I'm like, she's gonna be quiet. That's this kind of phrase. As it turned out. That's one of these romantic movie, movie type things. As it turns out, she's just working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, again, this is this whole, okay, you ended up here, and just at the right time, Boaz, of the, all the fields, no doubt, he had, he just happens to arrive at the field that Ruth's at. Yeah, right. And he's arriving, and he's greeting his workers, and he's saying, the Lord be with you to which his workers or as the boss drives by or rides by or whatever, walks by, whatever he's doing, they're like, the Lord bless you. That's kind of the way they talk back then. I mean, we kind of say, hey, how you doing? They're like, the Lord be with you and the Lord bless you. And as he's walking by, we read this phrase, Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to this is old testament phrase for check her out that's what this is like hey how you doing the lord bless you the lord bless the lord bless you (laughs) is what this is like whose woman is that he asked the beforeman like who is that it's obvious and the foreman says, Well, she's the Moabite. Obviously, man, something was happening already because when he says Moabite, Boaz is this high standing Jewish man. When you say the word Moabite, you're thinking about, it, Oh, keep moving. No, man, he is like, I don't care if she's a Moabite. She's the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. And she said to me, Can I glean in your field and gather the sheaves behind? the harvesters and she came into the field and man she has worked hard all day from morning till now she took a break in the shelter for a little bit and Boaz approaches Ruth and he says my daughter listen to me don't go and glean in another field don't go away from here Stay here with the women who work for me. Man, this is like Old Testament pickup lines. This is like, you know, how you're working that stuff when all of us did that, trying to, to uh, you know, make a connection type stuff. That's Boaz here. You don't need to go anywhere else. Just stay here. Trying to act cool probably like, you know, I'm just looking out for you. Watch the field where the women are Harvesting and follow along after the women. He's all of a sudden very concerned for her. Uh, It's not uncommon in that day if a a, a single woman went out and was trying to get food, she was at risk. Things haven't changed with human nature over the years, you understand. She was at risk, and sometimes single women would be assaulted, and so he's all of a sudden he's concerned for her safety. Hey, hey stick, with, stick with my girls, all right? And in fact, um, I've told the men not to lay a hand on you. I mean, he has all of a sudden become protector. And listen to this. When you're thirsty, go and get a drink. And at this, she bowed down. And with her face to the ground, she asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you would notice me a foreigner. And Boaz replied, I know all about you. I know you came in with your mother-in-law, the death of your husband, how you've come to live with the people you do not know before. And Ruth, may the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, under whose wing you have come to take refuge. And She says may I continue to find favor in your eyes my lord You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant Though I don't even have the standing of one of your servants You're treating me better than even your your, your employees It gets even better at mealtime Boaz comes to her and says come over here Have some bread And dip it in the wine vinegar And when she sat down, he offered, he's serving her now, not going to happen normally. He's serving her some roasted grain. First date, right? Roasted grain. That's the way the story. So she had all she wanted and left over and she got up to glean and Boaz told his employees, listen, let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Don't tell her she needs to just take the leftovers or the sides of the field. Let her take the same stuff that you guys are getting from me. Even pull out some stocks. Make it easier on her. Pull out some stuff you're doing and just let it fall on the ground behind behind you where she's coming up. And leave it for them to pick up and don't rebuke her. And so Ruth gleaned until the evening and she threshed the barley and it amounted to an ephah. In other words, she went home that night with 30 to 50 pounds. 30 to 50 pounds of grain. Normally, people going out like that, they go out, they get a pound or two. And that was good enough. That got them through the day. They'd be back out the next day, a pound or two. That was normally what you got when you're picking up the leftovers. She goes home with 30 to 50 pounds, a month's worth of grain. Now, you seeing how this story's going? I mean, destitute, disowned, foreigner, outcast, culturally marginalized lady shows up, and all of a sudden, at the end of chapter two, she's leaving, she's going home with more than enough food. She gets home, and she tells Naomi about this, and, and Naomi, uh, wow, you know, and she begins to think, you know what? I know Boaz. Boaz is related to me. And she begins to think and get excited and she's thinking, you know what? In our culture, uh, Ruth, family looks out for each other and he actually is related to me and he could actually become our our guardian. They called it a guardian redeemer type thing. And, And what would happen is especially women in these situations when they lost a husband, Family would be willing to take them in and provide for them. Many times, I know this sounds weird, but many times they're like, man, uh, uh, you know, your brother died. What's his wife going to do? Well, I'll just take her in as another wife. Yeah, I'm glad I live now. (laughs) Whatever, they would take care, right? And Naomi's starting, the wheels are turning. And she's thinking, man, we can really make this work. He could be the one. Wait, wait. And so she concocts this um, plan that's chapter three. I gotta be honest, when I read this plan, I, um, I don't know, man. A little bit shady, a little bit seedy here. Basically what she, she, tells, <laughs> to, she tells Ruth to do is she said, you know what? Here's what you're gonna do. You're gonna wait till tonight. You're gonna wait till it's dark and Boaz is done working. And I know he's not gonna go back into Bethlehem because it's harvest time. Man, there was no hotels. It was, you worked, you found a place to sleep close to where you were working, got up the next morning, you just did this thing, right? Different culture. And she said, I know he'll be uh, on the, in the threshing area and he'll, he'll make his bed there. Yeah, see what I mean? Kind of getting, where are you going with this? He's like, I want you to show up tonight and I want you to lay down at his feet. I'm not sure why they couldn't have done this the next morning, just approached him, but this is the way they did it. And she's like, I wanna want tell you what I want you to do. I want you, when you get there, I want you to take the blanket off of his feet because his feet are gonna get cold and he's gonna wake up in the night and he's gonna try to put the blanket over his feet and then he's gonna see you. And so Ruth does this. She goes, sure enough, he's done. Night's over, laying down to rest. She takes a blanket from his feet, lays down at his his feet, and sure enough, in the night, his feet get cold. He wakes up, he sits up, and there's Ruth. But she's not there in any kind of... uh, uh, any kind of, uh, what's the word I'm thinking here? Sorry, my mind went blank. She's not, she's not, um, my, my mind totally went blank. I hate that when that happens, right? She's not propositioning him at all. All she's simply saying is, Boaz, would you take me and Naomi in? She's actually offering him a proposal Wow, she's saying hey will you take us in really what it's saying is will you marry me it's pretty bold isn't it will you take Naomi in a Moabite woman asking an upstanding Jewish man in this manner to take her on and evidently Boaz had to bug because he said yes. And the story goes, and obviously there's always got to be a twist, right? It's got to be a, a good movie always has a twist. You know what I'm talking about. The ex shows up or somebody, you know, somebody, from, you, know, you know how that goes. The twist here is that the next day they realize, well, you know what? There's a closer relative and because he's an upstanding man said I can't I, I got to ask him first because that's the way our laws go and no doubt Boaz is like oh great you know I've fallen in love here obviously with this woman now I got to put it back out there and they approach the man and said hey you know here's Naomi your relative would you take her and would you take Ruth in and the guy at first goes yeah I'll do it and then they keep talking they say yeah It's Naomi and her daughter-in-law, the Moabite, Ruth. As soon as he he hears the words Moabite, he's like, I'm out. And Boaz is able to take Ruth and Naomi in. And chapter four is so vastly different than chapter one. And in fact, it ends this way. This is the family line of Perez. Perez. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amminadab Amminadab the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz. Boaz, the father of Obed. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David. It's that David, that, that king, David. That David of whom Jesus, or God said, my Messiah will come of that line. That's why when we begin to read, who is Jesus? What is he about? He intentionally puts in there, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. No Moabite shall ever enter the temple of God. Was what the Old Testament law said. Ruth, the great grandmother of David. You see, what's central to this whole story, and what it, in fact, when we're, what's this about? Who's Jesus? Where did he come from? One of the first things he wants us to remember and understand is that this is a redemption story. You know that Jesus? What he's about? He's about destitute, broken, helpless, vulnerable Ruth. The outsider, the foreigner, the outcast woman who becomes the wife of the upstanding Boaz and who becomes the great-grandmother or great-great-grandmother of David whose blood is shared in the person of Jesus Christ. The vintage truth of Christmas, one of the vintage truths of Christmas is redemption. This is a precursor. This is a, hey, you wanna get what good news of great joy is all about? Well, here's a little story for you to understand what Jesus is about. It's a precursor. To all of us, destitute in our sin, broken, displaced, and lost by our choices, outcast by our nature. And Jesus freely comes, freely gives, freely invites. And changes everything. That's what this is. That's what God is wanting us to see when we open up Matthew chapter one and we begin to read names whose mother was Ruth. And my prayer is that in all the vintage type stuff that happens this season, I don't know what that is for you but there's classic timeless things that you do every year because it's just this is what this is about. Continue to grab on to the fact that this babe in a manger all the stunning details of the story is really a classic timeless story about redemption. Boaz gave freely, liberally, without any kind of compulsion to Ruth. Jesus offers grace and offers a chance at our lives looking vastly different through his grace. That's what he wants to do being destitute in our sin to being accepted and lavish in his grace. Boaz fathered Obed whose mother was Ruth. That's what you need to know about Christmas. That's one thing you can grab onto. God is an unbelievably redemptive God who has a Moabite in his family tree on purpose to show us something greater. Let's stand. Father, help us just to grab this, to drink deeply in what you've done and how you feel and what you have accomplished in this Christmas season. You became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld the glory of the Father, Jesus Christ full of grace and truth. And Lord, on purpose, you allowed this circumstance to happen to communicate to us all that what you're truly about what good news of great joy is is redemption a changed story a changed life hope-filled purposeful so lord help us to grab a hold of that help us to marvel in that this season and help us to communicate that to others who don't know who don't see, who don't understand, who don't recognize that you're the God of Ruth. You're the God of Ruth who changed everything. That's what you do. We thank you and praise you today in Jesus' name. Amen.